This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 122 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Charles Owen, Equestrian Collections, and Horseshow.com. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford. Welcome back to the Dressage Radio Show as the full season gets truly underway here. I'm recording, as always, from Lexington, Kentucky, where we've definitely got a little nip in the air and uh, we're glad of some nice fresh weather after the summer heat. I hope it's... uh, Ideal where you are and you're enjoying your dressage. We've got another different episode this week. As you know, we always have something new and different here on the Dressage Radio Show. And this week, I'm going to introduce you to a new guest, and that is Paul Belasic. Paul is a very well-known exponent of classical dressage, and uh, he runs the Pennsylvania Riding Academy here in the States. So I was able to catch up with Paul. I want to share that conversation with you in just a second. And later on in the show, we're going to continue our series of tips from the professional equine grooms. Live Good has another one for us this week. They're going to be on all of my shows, dressage, eventing, and jumping. So if you need any grooming tips, then this is the place to stop by. But first of all, we want to... Uh, Welcome Paul Belasic to the show. As I said, Paul runs the popular Pennsylvania Riding Academy. And we'll hear from Paul how he got into the sport via a more academic route. So let's welcome Paul to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. Nice to have you on the show. You know, a lot of people know Paul Belasic. They know you by name. They may have even been to your website. But uh, since it's your first time on the show, Paul, and we obviously talk to a global audience, let's tell them your story. Where, where, where did Paul Belasic get the dressage bug? Well, I, I actually was born in a city, and no one in my family um, really had anything to do with animals. I was kind of one of those typical animal crazy kids and I had an aunt who was a nurse in the Navy and she promised me when I was 12 years old she kept uh, luring me on that I, she would take me to a friend of hers who had a farm and it turned out that the man who owned the farm was an expert horseman and so my and all my interest in animals kind of shifted a little bit in, toward the horses and that was where I first got my start. Um, after that it became just a a continuing passion. I had been involved with all kinds of animal things, including falconry and so forth. But um, dressage, it really, it really had, uh, it really did something to me because it, it was so. It was just of, of all the communication and all the work you could do with animals. It seemed to me to be on another total level by itself. So I went on just briefly. I went on to college, kept pursuing riding there, and I started in the pre-veterinary program at Cornell University, and then I switched midway um, because I just didn't think that I really wanted to be a vet. I was more interested in other things and art and so forth. And uh, I was a poet and, and deriding at the same time. And there came a point where I had seemed to have artistic friends and, and horse friends, and they never seemed to get along. The, the One thought the other were snobs, and the other thought the other were farmers. And <laughs> that kind of prompted me to write the first book, Riding Towards the Light. And I just thought, I just wanted to write a book. It wasn't a how, exactly how-to book, but maybe there were other people who thought like I did and felt these things. And it turned out that there must have been some audience for it because it seemed to be quite popular. 
Yes, well, we want to talk about your books, uh, Paul, but I'm going to step back a little bit there. You said how you, where you began. Where, where exactly were you, and did you have anyone in the family to follow in their footsteps in the horse world? No, no, no one at all. No, there weren't even really any, many animal people in my family. We were kind of we were in the city, um, and this would have been in Western New York and Buffalo, New York, and uh, there really wasn't an example. I was just um, the one thing I. I was an avid reader, and I, back in those days, it's so different now with the Internet and so on, but back in those days, you had to really go to a library and for, to have horse books. And you, you, a person, an average person or a kid couldn't afford to buy them, so every Saturday I'd trudge off to the library, and I, remember, I still remember there was this uh, limit of seven books per week or whatever, so I would go Saturday, drop off the seven, get another seven. And um, I guess I don't know if it's a way some people are mentally bent or whatever, but um, I, I felt I could learn the things from reading. I know some of my students don't seem to have that ability at all. They really want to, they want to see action and so forth. But um, And maybe it was forced because I didn't have, I couldn't afford teachers and so forth. But um, I learned to really read the books and then and then I could mimic the things or see if these theories worked. And I, after years and years of practice, I began to realize which authors I felt really knew what they were talking about and which and, and, and which other uh, theories just really couldn't be couldn't work. Yes, interesting. I want to talk about those and who who your mentors were. But so do you you weren't one of these little boys then that had a a sister who was horse crazy and uh, you, you tagged along there. It was, no. it was a very academic approach. Yes, it really was kind of. I took I took lessons and then I had a um, after that summer I would take lessons whenever I could uh, and then I think it was probably I bought my first horse when I was probably around 16 years old or so. So I'd, from that point on, I always had a horse and, um, and, and worked with them. But yes, it was, it was pretty much, uh, it, it wasn't an academic and a practical approach. It was kind of marrying the two, read some theory and then go back and practice and see if, it, if, it, if you could bring it into reality. So it was, it was the two things. I really don't think I realized at the time, Later, I would read Podhysky's book, and he would always say the best horsemen would, would always match the practical experience with theory. I, I did it because I, I, it wasn't any grand plan. It was all I could do. It was, I, it was, I, there was no other way for me. Well, now, who were those early influences then, the, the ones that really caught your eye when you were studying those books and obviously the old great classical dressage masters there? There are some that were, would obviously have influenced your developing style at that point of those formative years, Paul. Who, who really appealed to you? Well, I, I remember that I, I was always mesmerized with the Spanish writing school and, and the form uh, the photographs and it, it, that was intriguing to me. But fairly early on in in my career, I met uh, Henry von Scheich, and there are there was a whole bunch of us who were influenced by him. And he was an amazing teacher in that he was a very erudite and really well read. Had experience. He had won the silver medal in the nineteen in nineteen thirty six at the Olympics. Um, but he was he was really 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 young at heart, and he loved to challenge you, and he loved it when you argued with him and so forth. And he also he was kind of an odd guy in that he was one of the he he was this kind of a, a collector of like new things. He had one of the first computers that I remember. And this, this is a guy who was much, much older than all of us, those people, but he was so far ahead of us. So he was always collecting gadgets and so forth. And he had a camera and he used to go around the world. And at least once a year, he would visit some of these great horsemen and he would take films of them. These would be the likes of guys like von Neindorf or de Paderak or, 
Enrique, and uh, he was filming. They, and I don't know how anyone would allow you to do it now with the likes of YouTube and so forth. But <laughs> he would film. He would film them, and he had this great collection. So you, when you go take a lesson with him or have dinner with him or whatever, he was very, very savvy about just showing you a little bit of a clip, and you would tell him who the who you thought maybe was this great this competition rider who was winning prizes, and he would kind of just you know roll his eyes and say, well. Let me show you something else. And then he'd show you this piece of film that would just blow you away. It was on a whole total different level. And then he'd kind of put it away and you wouldn't, he wouldn't let you see it again for quite a while. So he was, he was a master at setting the hook. But he also he developed this thirst and this quest in all the students for uh, this, this different way, this art, this art form, this, this, this higher form of writing, this you know, really technical, but also had, a, had a, almost a spiritual element, an, an art element in it. Yes, because as you mentioned earlier, that you know, in those days it was easier to to go to books, and there was the attraction to go to books because there wasn't the distraction of the internet and and video and so on. And mm-hmm. and younger people maybe don't have that kind of uh, instructional background, if you will, the theoretical background. But it clearly stood you in in very good stead to develop your own style. Who would you say that you have developed that style primarily on? Whose influence, if you looked at which European country or European classical masters, uh, Paul, who who would you say were most influential? I would I would have to say it would probably be sort of the Austro-Hungarian style that you would see um, the Spanish writing school writers, but even maybe German writers more like a Vechen or a Soinig, uh, um They were... Um, uh, they were it was position was very important to them they were real stylists uh, the um they were um they may or may not have competed very often competition wasn't there but Heisky was known for his competing but there were many many of the teachers he learned from the spanish writers who really had didn't have much of an interest in competition they were they were really sort of equestrian artists so i would say it was more that style for me it blended it blended the it blended the kind of um almost the artisticness of the sort of French style, but the precision of the German style on top of it. Um, and uh, so it, it spoke to me. And over the years, I, will, I come back to it over and over again when I, I, I explored every kind of school of writing there is, I think. And I still come back there that for really understanding the elements of collection for proper position in order to be able to achieve those things in dressage, um, they still stand out to me, that, that school of writing. Well, this is, as I said, is an interesting beginning and unusual in the modern day as people usually are so competition-driven and not developing that classical uh, foundation to dressage so much as just getting being competition-driven. Which is the most persuasive to you now? Do you, you yearn to get into the competition arena or are you very focused on teaching those principles? No, I was never really big on comp- competing, uh, although I competed at almost all levels. Um, and I have horses now. My assistant, Andrea Vallis, who's been with me a long time, she she competes our horses. And we almost always have a horse in the FEI, Grand Prix horse out there. But for me, it's never been, even when I worked with a lot of competitive riders, I, I always felt that if you really took care of the details and you rode very well, then the, the winning the, would take care of itself. There, There's a certain point where you're going to have to entertain politics and there's not much you're going to be able to do about that or and you may not want to do about that. But if you ride well, um, it, that's what it's going to stand out. And in the long run, you'll get your share of praise or, 
or rewards, but um, you'll also become a really good rider. But I think it's a real problem today when you see, when we were just talking about the internet a, a minute ago, is that I see and find too many of the young people really don't know where the source material is. So they, they take it on, you know, on, on, on fact that what they see on the internet might be correct. Much of this stuff is really under-researched and oftentimes it's misquoted and, and a lot of times it's completely wrong. Uh, and they could easily, it's not that, it's not impossible to go to the source material to find Gary Neer's book or, or Podhysky's book or uh, Steinbrecht's book and to read these books and to know what these men are saying and then uh, make a make a better judgment. But uh, it's really lacking. There's I don't know of any other school of endeavor that you could study art if you were you would have to study art history. But in writing, we get away with murder with the young people with knowing nothing sort of below 1950. Yes, that's very interesting, of course, and certainly for uh, the, the present generation, not even pre-internet. Um, there's, yeah. not, there's not the study base there. And you mentioned those, uh, of course, great masters. Uh, it's interesting, just as an aside, Paul, and you will appreciate that all of these were men. Of those yeah. early masters before women became mm-hmm. active, probably in the competition arena, but it, it was dominated by men in, the, in its classical form in the early days, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm, I'm, I think that's just, that's one of those cultural things. Um, the, I think the the interesting thing about riding and equitation is that it's probably the only when you, if you want to look at it as a sport and you look at them, it's probably the only sport where men and women compete on an equal basis now. So from its roots of being really a chauvinist thing, it's really t- turned around the other way to being a, a really an example of how how equal um, and, uh, and democratic the whole art form is. Uh, and there's no other there's no other activity that that you can get in and where the strength won't dominate eventually. So you have athletes. What do they all do? They all take drugs today. Why? Because just a few ounces more strength will determine who can win. But that's not it in riding. Uh, it's not about strength. We will continue our conversation in just a moment. But first of all, I want to remind you about our, one of our sponsors here on the Dressage Radio Show, and that is Charles Owen, who are well known for making helmets, but they also produce gloves as well. And one of those is the Ruckel Chester Glove, which is a lightweight, close-fitting glove made from Vesta synthetic leather. They also do the Ruckel New Aston Glove, another stylish synthetic leather glove that comes with rain reinforcements and an elasticated wristband. The back of the glove is breathable, which prevents the build-up of sweat. These gloves are both practical and hard-wearing, making them ideal for everyday use. And you can find out more about these gloves and all of the helmets that Charles Owen produces, as well as the rest of their products, on their website by visiting charlesowen.co.uk. Well, Paula, the other uh, area I want to talk about, as well as your books, is is also the academy that you have in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Tell us how that is structured. Then, if it's not competition focused, as you as you pointed out earlier, that will follow if you have all the principles, mm-hmm. and the foundation of your writing correctly. Do you attract mostly young people that are in pursuit of the art, or are they ultimately competition driven? What what do you offer at the academy? Well, it would be a, it would be a big mix. Um, I teach all kinds of people, and it would be hard to put them in the category. But what 
usually I would probably be more analogous to saying that like our short courses are a short week of intensive and it would be more like if you were a golfer and you might have a, a swing coach or something or a dancer, even though these can be accomplished people, they feel they have to come back somewhere and have their position checked because they get involved in too many other things. Um, so we do that. We also teach day students who come in here who are local and travel in, um, but we are the, our main sort of focus besides our breeding program and, and our own training of horses but for the training of people. It's primarily the short courses where you come and you get an intensive, you can bring your own horse or you can use one of our school horses. And there you, you can kind of come here and chill out uh, stay on the farm, observe training all day long of all horses from the lowest level to Grand Prix. And with complete transparency there, like in many schools, there isn't two hours of the arena that are blocked off where no one's allowed to go in there and see what happens. For here, you can see anything you want at any time. It's wide open, what we do. And it's not always perfect or beautiful, but it's real. And it's, I, would, I would hope that it would never be cruel or brutal. You would see it as being um, really productive. So students of all, all kinds, as long as they're reason, they have to be reasonably fit, meet the body mass index, and they can schedule a short course and and come and work essentially on position. Uh, especially on position. So let's talk about that then, Paul, because obviously you want to establish those basics. Do you put them on the lunge line? For, would they expect to spend a long time on the lunge line with you? No, not not necessarily. What I, over the years I've found is that most of the people who come, they're going to have a basic, they're not going to be absolute beginners. They're going to have a basic knowledge, but they're probably going to have some faults. But I've found that really a lot of a lot of the problems come in riding in position is when you take up the reins and then that trying to balance whether if the horse is pulling on the reins, if the horse is too light on the reins, but it's that connection of the reins to your core that is the really the significant part. So when you ride on the lunge line, which is very good, of course, for setting up your seat and so forth, but it doesn't challenge your balance enough. And then when you pick up the reins, you think, oh my God, now, now what? This is a totally different thing. So I often like to let them have really safe and perfect horses that they can take hold of the reins. The horses really won't pull on them, so they can still concentrate on position, but they're going to have to pay a little bit of attention to that whole realm of, the, of a quadruped's balance. So, um, and I like to do, I, I like to do that more now. And I, I find that a rider makes faster progress when they can sort of, you know, have all of these, uh, hold all, all the parts of the horse and then, then work that way. So you would obviously be an advocate of uh, rider biomechanics, which we talk about often here on the show, Paul, because that you mentioned the core and the relationship yeah. of the core to the rider's core to the horse and the connection. Do you study biomechanics, or do you do you uh, uh, do you instruct biomechanics in that sense, or is it integrated in in the riding and not as a separate subject? No, no, it's it's yeah. I study constantly biomechanics, and I have really some great friends who are experts in the field who are always telling me the latest things that are coming up and so forth. So, um, no, we, we work on that. We work on it nonstop all the time. In fact, the first lesson when you come here, oh, no matter what level of riding, we work on the exercise ball and on a stationary horse. Um, and we just go over some fundamental things that little, they're little odd sort of little tricks and things that I, uh, that I can show a rider or the feeling of it in a, in a short amount of time. And then of course, mimicking that on a horse and practicing to get it consistently. Well, that's going to take years, but you can usually set up a rider so they can get a tiny glimpse of what they should be trying to feel by using these biomechanical exercises. So absolutely. Uh, I use it all the time. 
And apart from your short courses, you also do clinics, don't you? You travel around the country to give clinics? Yes, I just was. I just came back from Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, just the day before yesterday. So, um, yeah, I, I, I travel all over to do clinics, uh, uh, yes. I'm trying to never because we have a lot of horses in training. We're also we're a regular training establishment, and we train horses for other people and for ourselves to prepare a few each year for sale. So I limit them to only two two per month. Right, and how do you structure your clinics, uh, Paul? How would how would what would what would your uh, attending clinicians expect if you uh, if they're, you wanted to attend? They're always uh, forty-five minute sessions, and uh, with a limit of ten. Usually on Saturday and Sunday, I try to arrive at the place on a Friday or whatever, and uh, then I, I can return if it's if it's not too far away. I can return Sunday night, or else I come back on a Monday if I'm on the West Coast or somewhere. But in general, it'll be Saturday and Sunday. Sometimes if I can arrive early on Friday, there'll be a couple of lessons on Friday. But two days of teaching, forty-five minute sessions, ten ten sessions on Saturday and Sunday. How would you? How would you describe your style if someone wanted to, if you wanted to sell yourself, so to speak, in you know, in a few sentences? How would you, how would you describe what you offer, Paul, and your style of riding based on the, the classics? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that I do, I think my lessons might seem a little different than other people, is I always start off by asking the rider what to just tell me a little bit about themselves and their horse. So that I don't, I don't come in with, you know, the clinic or the theme is going to be shoulder in and everybody's going to get a lesson on shoulder in this clinic or whatever I happen to be interested in. I try to take every rider as an individual and I really made it my, made it my sort of duty to make sure that every lesson gets the same amount of attention. If I'm, I, if I'm sort of the flu or whatever, I'm still going to work hard and I don't have a glass of wine at lunch so that the afternoon lessons are different than the beginning. So I don't think anyone has ever been, any of my clinics could ever say that they, they didn't see me put in the same amount of energy in the first lesson as the last lesson. So you're going to get my fullest attention and you're going to get, I'm really interested in rider position because I think that the position is the key to be able to be functional and, and on the horse. And then I look for um, sort of significant, uh, anyone can find things that are wrong in a horse or a rider. But what I'm trying to do is evaluate is one or two or maybe three at most of those significant things that would, if they were corrected, would make a quantum leap for the rider. So it's not just a lot of, I don't look for a lot of just, little mundane, busy corrections, but I'm looking, I'm trying to observe really carefully to see what would be a really significant one or two changes that would really jump the whole team up. So that's, that's kind of the way I, I go about it. But before we go any further, I want to remind you about one of our sponsors here on the Horse Radio Network's Dressage Radio Show, and that, of course, is Equestrian Collections, who are our loyal supporters on the Horse Radio Network. And if you're shopping for a young rider, then Equestrian Collections gives you the very best choice of riding apparel, footwear, gifts, helmets, and safety gear for your young riders of any equestrian website in the world. And there's always great everyday promotion prices, too, with an enormous selection from head to toe. Equestrian Collections have young riders covered. You can shop the Young Riders Department at equestriancollections.com or in the Horse Department. And you can use coupon code HRN at your checkout and get $10 off your next order of $100 or more. Equestrian Collections is a participating retailer of the Horse World Gives Back campaign. Of course, you have published several books 
Paul. Let's mm-hmm. talk about your books. And how did that all come about? Because we, we do share the same publisher in, in the interest of full disclosure. J.A. Allen have published a number of your books. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that all come about? What, 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 was the, what was the catalyst to becoming an author as well as a classical horseman? Well, as I told you a little bit earlier, is that I, I, was, a, I was a trained writer, and I was, I was part of the Cornell writing program, and I had uh, a very famous poet was a teacher of mine, and so and I, I actually had published some poetry, and I, so I was a writer. But um, I didn't think of ever that was kind of this artistic writing, and I, I never thought about really – and I wrote articles for horse magazines, but I didn't think about a book. Um, I had – all of the books that I had loved, almost all of them, when I think of all the authors, they were all, as you know, Alan, they had, that was the stable to be in. All of the great writers, they all, all Alan published all their books. So I thought if I ever do publish a book, that's the publisher I wanted to be aligned with. And at that point, you know, Mr. Allen was still alive and Caroline Burt was there. It was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was pretty, it was a pretty impressive place, even though it, it was kind of, as you know, if you've been there, the roof leaked a little bit and there was stuff, but it was in a great location. And it was a wonderful still... location. If anyone listening has ever uh, ever remembers going to Alan's bookstore with the publishing uh, offices overhead, just uh, across the street from the Buckingham Palace, uh, um, from the Muse, Royal Muse. And as you said, the roof leaked, It would, but it was very Dickensian, but it was utterly charming and very efficient. And Caroline Burt, yeah. who I should uh, add is a great dear, dear, dear friend. Um, I worked with her there for 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 quite some time, and and it really is. If you're going to get into publishing, it was the most charming way to do it, wasn't it? Yeah, and Carolyn was um, when I she's always been great, and I I really missed her when she retired a lot because when the first book when I did write the writing toward the light, it wasn't a very usual writing book. It was a little unusual, and I didn't know that anyone would really want to publish it. But she was pretty keen on it from the beginning, and she was really an ally of mine, and she always has been. And um, I really owe a lot to her, but she, um, but that's how, that's kind of how it started. So after writing Toward the Light, my intention when I wrote it was, was always that it was never, was not to be just a single book, but I wanted it to be kind of follow the traditional uh, apprenticeship, journeyman, craftsman phase—the way in way uh, craftspeople learn their learn their skills—and so um, that's that's how the three first three books came about. They were uh, a book more or less about my apprenticeship, and then a second book more about technical aspects and a journeyman, where you're, you're trying out all these techniques, you're trying to get really familiar and comfortable with expanding your craft, and finally the last one, which is more about being a little bit comfortable with the technique, so that you actually might be able to produce art or you don't have to pick up your violin and count where the notes are you go and you want to produce feelings more and and that's that was a, so that was kind of the first three and tell us the titles of those paul the pardon me uh, tell us the, the titles title. of those books. oh yeah yes. so the first first one was riding towards the light and i think that was published in 1990 and then the second one was exploring dressage technique uh not before and then Songs of Horses came in 1999, was uh, seven stories for the writing teachers and students. Um, and then it was not long after that, I think, that then in partnership with uh, Trafalgar Square here in the States, the publishing company, that they put them all together in a trilogy and uh, entitled it The Essential Paul Belasic. And I wrote a new forward for it. So, and that, and then, so they put those all together. 
And now, of course, you have two two other titles. Let's talk about mm-hmm. those two titles. And we should, while mentioning Alan's and Caroline Burt, you now, uh, again, we shared this, someone who has been an editor for me too. That is, of course, Leslie Gowers, who's still with uh, J.A. Allen and mm-hmm. part of uh, Hale Books in, in London. And you have two other, other titles there to tell us about, yeah. Search for Collection and Dressage for the 21st Century. What, what, what could we expect in those, Paul? Well, the 21st century, Dressage for the 21st century is a, is a bigger book, and some people will think of it almost like a small coffee table book, but that was never my intention. Um, Carolyn Berg had approached me about it, and, um, and then it was published, co-published with Trafalgar Square here in the United States. And for me, it was meant to be a, a, a manual. I wanted it to be a really a really com- comprehensive kind of manual that, like I, like you would see in a, people working in a garage, and they'd pull out to fix their old uh, Austin Healy, and they'd pull it out and fit grease all over, but they were to study it, and that's what I wanted it to be. Um, my good friend Carl Leck, who was an outstanding international photographer, uh, lived around me at the time, and he agreed to go in with me on the project. And this was before digital cameras, so there was no photoshopping here. All the photos you're seeing there were that they really happened, they they worked, and. Uh, so I have often found myself trying to explain these brilliant photos of Carl, but trying to get some language to go with it. And I had a, a great illustrator living in a cottage on my farm, and, and Brian Tutlow did some great drawings in it. So it, I thought it was a really, uh, really good project, and um, and uh, it was it was kind of pretty well received. Search for Collection is the most is the current book, um, uh, and that um, that's. A little bit more toward riding towards the light. It also talks a little bit about my work with. We talked about some biomechanics, but with Dr. Hillary Clayton at, the, at in Michigan here, and um, um, we worked on a, a project with some different experiments. And one of them was measuring the Levade for the first time in history on the force plates. And so I talk a little bit about what was that experience like and what did that mean for. Uh, the theory of, of collection and so forth, because some of these things had never been proven scientifically. So that's what that book is about, and also some psychological aspects. Very interesting. Yes, of course, we've had Mary Wanless and Heather Blitz and also uh, Dr. Hilary Clayton on the show in the in the past. So I, you're mm-hmm. all sharing a common theme there to improve the rider's position through rider biomechanics and and studying the art form, the search for collection seems a pretty challenging title there, Paul. What was the conclusion? Um, I think that it, that it's just that. It's a search. And it's a, and it's collection. It's a term that we use in writing, but it's also a term for a human being, how you would go through life. That hopefully with a little practice that your psychological state gets, you become a better human being. Maybe you learn more patience. You, um, you, and so it's also learning the same thing to, to be able to gather to your own core as the horse does its own, but not only your physical core, but to a certain psychological core so that you can enter the state that many athletes feel that they enter almost by accident. That's that kind of state of flow where you don't think about money. You don't think about results. You just think about the action. It's a pure action, almost a Zen feeling. So I think that's a little bit what that book is about too. And dressage for the 21st century. And that, as I say, that is the manual. That's the, my, yeah. And that was the one where we, uh, it was sold out. And then we, um, the rights reverted back to me, so we use the same Chinese publishers, and we've now reprinted a limited edition, which is signed and numbered. And, and if anybody wants copies, they are still available, and you can get them by just emailing me, and you can always find my email on my website.
Absolutely. We will, of course, put a link to your website, Paul, on our show notes so you can follow with Paul. You can find out more about what he does there at the Pennsylvania Riding Academy at Lost Hollow Farm. What a lovely name, Paul. Have you, yeah. How long have you been at Lost Hollow Farm? Uh, seven years now, yeah. So. Yeah, lovely yeah. location. All right. And we, uh, mm-hmm. of course, will be uh, sharing also on our Facebook page. You can go to uh, Paul Balasic. Do you have a Facebook page as well? Do you have a following there, Paul? Do you use new media? No, we don't. I don't have Facebook. We just pretty much use our website and email. Okay. All right. Well, we'll make sure we uh, link to that and you can uh, find out more about Paul's books. I want to thank you so much for spending time with us, Paul, and uh, good luck with all of these titles. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I'm, I'm glad to glad you had me on the show. Well, before we go any further, I want to remind you about one of our other valued sponsors here on the Dressage Radio Show, and that is Horseshow.com, because you can go to Horseshow.com now and compete online, just like you were at a regular horse show. You can get judged by the top judges, and you can get the judges' comments. Just upload your home video and enter a class online to win at Horseshow.com. It's a simple and economic way for you to compete with your horse from home. It's also a great way to prepare for your next show or track your progress during the off-season. Horseshow.com features real horse shows from multiple breeds and disciplines, and they're judged by nationally accredited judges. So why wait when you can go anytime to Horseshow.com to upload your video, enter with a chance to win. That's Horseshow.com. Well, it's time now for our tip of the week from the professional equine grooms. Liv Good is going to join us and going to bring us a tip each week, either on the dressage radio show, the eventing, or the jumping radio show. So let's hear what Liv has for us this week. Well, Liv, welcome to the dressage radio show. Nice to have you on the show again. I believe you've got another tip that's going to be useful, not just to the grooms, although, of course, we're talking about these tips coming from the grooms, and nobody knows better how to... uh, find these little tips and tricks, do they, than the grooms out there? That's what we're hoping. We hope there's a bunch of really knowledgeable grooms out there. And um, the tip I have for you today involves the sheepskin pads that is very common to see on a dressage horse. And the care for those sheepskin pads, because they are so very delicate and yet so critical to the performance of the horse in terms of how comfortable the horse is. Um, they are tricky to wash. You can get specific um, washing agents to use in the washing machine for them, but you'll find that when they come out of the wash, they're not exactly fluffy and comfortable. So what I like to do is get a dog grooming brush. They are um, made of wire, very, very thin, stiff wires, and you can fluff up your sheepskin pads with the dog brush. And if you have barn dogs running around, they like it as well. So it's a two-for-one. What happens then is the sheepskin gets all fluffy, and subsequently the saddle fit is much better and much fluffier and much more comfortable for your horse, which is, of course, ultimately, you know, the end goal here. The other reason for doing this is also so that you can take your sheepskin pad, flip it upside down, and see if there's any uneven wear meaning one side of the sheepskin is maybe a little more compacted than the other side, which might be a reason for you to call your saddle sitter out. So it's not only taking care of your products, but it's taking care of your horse and preventing future saddle sit problems. It's a three-for-one special. That's terrific. I love it. (laughs) 
All right, Liv. Well, thank you so much for that. We look forward to more tips from the professional equine grooms. We'll see you back on one of these shows very shortly. Thank you so much, Liv. You're welcome. Have a great day. Well, that's it for this week's show. Don't forget to check out all our notes at dressageradio.com or leave your comments, questions, or suggestions on Facebook as well. If you uh, prefer to email me, my direct email here at the network is chris, C-H-R-I-S, at horseradionetwork.com. And don't forget, if you're under 20 years of age and would like to give us a report about your show here on the Dressage Radio Show, then send me an email too. Love to hear from you. Any young reporters out there, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, we would love to hear about your show. And also, of course, you can follow us on Twitter here, the Horse Radio and uh, of Chris E. Stafford is my Twitter name, Chris Middle E. Stafford. That's it for this week. I'll be back with lots more content next week and future episodes here. We've got the Pan American Games coming up this fall, so stay tuned for news of that as well and coverage of that. We'll also be bringing you coverage of the Olympics too next year, so you might want to start thinking about that, how you're going to... Follow the Olympic Games from London, England, because right here on the Horse Radio Network, we'll be bringing you coverage, daily coverage from London on the eventing dressage and jumping radio shows. So all that to look forward to and a lot more. Of course, Wellington this winter as well with the uh, dressage and the Masters competitions. So much going on in the sport. But we do want to hear from you as well. You know, I love to hear from you wherever you are in the world about your competitions and what's happening in your backyard and any training questions you may have. And if there's anyone you'd like me to have here on the show just send me an email but that wraps it up for now i will of course be back the same time same place next week so until then thank you all for listening